and a happy birthday today to Catherine Uthi of Ames. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Catherine. Uh, and to Deborah Hernstrom of Iowa City. Happy birthday, Catherine and Deborah. You're joined today in your birthday by actor Vanessa Williams, who turns 61, and by actor and rapper Queen Latifah, who turns 54 today. So happy birthday to everyone with a birthday today. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now, here is Nicole with our first obituary. Right, and today we want to honor two people. The first is Chol Su Seal of Urbandale. We are sad to announce the passing of Chol Su Seal, also known as John of Urbandale, Iowa. He died on March 11, 20 this year at his home. He was surrounded by his wife, two sons, and sister. John was born on October 3, 1967 to Suk Sun Seal and Lee Kyung Ja in Seoul, South Korea. John and his sister, Becky, would later be adopted by Robert and Barbara Gilligan. John attended Valley High School, and he continued his education through Korean Language School and Yongsei University, where he then met his wife, Yunju. Yunju and John moved back to Iowa, and they had two sons, Timothy and Brandon. John was extremely proud of Tim and Brandon for all their accomplishments and supported everything his family did. John spent most of his professional career as an entrepreneur and salesman. In Davenport, he received numerous awards for being the top salesman and manager at the Pace Setter Corporation. He decided to move back to Des Moines, where he would then build his own company, Choice One Construction. His problem-solving skills made him great at everything he did. John was never afraid to get his hands dirty and was always worried about his customer's satisfaction. When a customer had a smile on their face, John carried that smile all the way home. John loved his two dogs, Ace and Max. He loved spending time outside and enjoying nature. Whether it was golfing, darts, dominoes, or watching movies or boxing, you could always count on hearing his infectious laughter. He had the ability to befriend anybody he met and was so generous with his time and resources. He survived by his wife, his sons, Timothy and Brandon, his siblings, Rebecca, Jenny, Brian, Chung Young, his nieces and nephews, Jamie, Elizabeth, Connor, Alexander, and Sydney. There is a private family cremation that will take place at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory. There's also a celebration of life from 5 to 8 p.m. on Friday, March 22nd, over at the Raccoon River Park Nature Lodge. Mark L. Elstner and this is from Colchester. Mark L. Elstner from Colchester, Vermont and Clearwater, Florida passed away on February 10, surrounded by family and friends following a wonderful and successful life. Mark was born on November 30, 1947 to Joseph E. Elstner and Harriet Drew Elstner in Kansas City, Missouri. He spent his public school years in West Des Moines, graduating from Valley High School in 1966. He then attended the University of Illinois, from which he graduated in 1970. In 1971, Mark found Scientology, which became his personal adventure, and he applied philosophy for his entire adult life. 
He worked directly for their organization in Washington, D.C. and in Clearwater, Florida from 1973 to 1983. He thereafter remained an active participant in the church through his life. A longtime Scientologist for over 50 years, Mark expressed an acknowledgement for the wondrous spiritual gift he received this life from Mr. Hubbard and the Scientology religion, as well as for the Church of Scientology. In 1983, Mark began a career in financial services with the Vermont Agency in Burlington, Vermont, and for the next 40 years he worked with others as a financial advisor. He enjoyed this part of his life as he was able to help others meet their financial objectives and increase their enjoyment in life. Mark was a kind and generous man who took care to help others. Full of interest, he had a unique ability to recognize the life and strength of those around him. Mark was also a talented musician and artist. His affinity and creativity for music and a love was a love that he carried throughout his life. A loving partner, father, and grandfather, Mark will be deeply missed by all. He's survived by his loving partner, Tricia Garner of Clearwater, Florida, his daughters, Alyssa Elsner and Trina Centron, both of Allendale, New Jersey, his grandchildren, Lila and Lucas Centron, his brothers, Joe Elsner of St. Louis, Missouri, and Chris Elsner of Goleta, California, and their wives, Diane Elsner and Paula Baglio. And uh, uh, Nicole, are you going to go back and finish up the maternal health article for us? Okay, here you go. Yes, we'll finish up this article here. So the study's authors on this say the problem with the CDC's numbers lies with the way statistics are gathered. The maternal death rate started to go up in 2003 when a pregnancy checkbox was first put on U.S. death certificates. The CDC's National Vital Statistics System changed those rules on the checkbox, but it still classifies many non-maternal deaths as a direct result of their pregnancy. If you're pregnant and die in a car crash, that's not a maternal death. A big change driving recent increases in the official numbers stems from the tendency to include more and more cancer-related deaths and also to pregnancy in Sorry, this is a big change driving recent increases in the official numbers stem from the tendency to include more and more cancer unrelated to pregnancy in maternal death rates. The study's authors calculated maternal death rates of the periods that the CDC did from 1999 to 2002 and 2018 to 2021 in two different ways, first by using the agency's methodology and then by restricting maternal deaths only to those where pregnancy appeared to be at least amid, at least once, amid the cause of death on a death certificate. U.S. children still grow up in segregation. More than half a century after racial segregation practices like redlining were outlawed, data suggests race still plays a huge role in determining what kind of neighborhood a child grows up in. According to findings released Thursday from the latest Child Opportunity Index, black and Latino children in the U.S. are much more likely than their white counterparts to grow up in neighborhoods with poorer health outcomes, fewer educational opportunities, and worse economic conditions. Researchers at Brandeis University in Boston, who created the Childhood Opportunity Index, have for more than a decade analyzed the quality of opportunities available to children in thousands of neighborhoods nationwide. More than 40 neighborhood factors, including building vacancy rates, green space, and employment rates, are considered, creating a portrait of the country's 73,000 census tracts, which are basically neighborhoods.
In the report, researchers involved with Brandeis University's project considered the country's 100 largest metro areas, finding deep disparity based on race, even when accounting for poverty. According to the report, a key form of inequality, the separation of children into neighborhoods with vastly different conditions, has been created and maintained by residential segregation, the report said. Positive and negative factors within a neighborhood are often layered, creating a compounding effect for the children that live there, according to Clement Nolke, research director for the project. Some kids are growing up in neighborhoods that have higher home values, better schools, and more access to green nature. And on the other side, a lot of children grow up in neighborhoods with high rates of pollution, under-resourced schools, and low-quality jobs, he said. The first COI was released in remembering that the COI is the Childhood Opportunity Index created by Brandeis. The first COI was released in 2014 and then the second in 2021. The third iteration, released this Thursday, suggests educational attainment, wages, and air pollution have improved for the U.S. as a whole, according to Nolke. But the inequalities that we see, they have largely persisted unchanged, he added, referring to racial and geographic disparities. Researchers categorize U.S. census tracts based on the level of opportunities available to children and families. The neighborhoods typically contain about 4,000 people and 1,600 housing units, the report says. Neighborhoods were categorized based on factors like air pollution, pre-K enrollment, access to broadband internet, availability of healthy foods, walkability, teacher experience, extreme heat exposure, and dozens of other variables. Each of the thousands of neighborhoods analyzed fell into one of five opportunity levels. Number one, very high opportunity. The home is 27, this is home to 27% of U.S. children. Number two, high opportunity. These areas are home to 21% of U.S. children. The third and middle category, moderate opportunity, which is home to 17% of U.S. children. The fourth category is low opportunity, and these areas are home to 16% of U.S. children. And the fifth area is very low opportunity, which are, is our areas, which, which areas are home to 19% of U.S. children. Low-opportunity neighborhoods are associated with higher mortality rates, according to researchers. Life expectancy in very high-opportunity neighborhoods is 82 years old, researchers found, while in very low-opportunity neighborhoods, life expectancy dropped to 76 years old. Across the U.S., black and Latino children are more likely to live in lower-opportunity neighborhoods, while white and Asian children are clustered in higher-opportunity neighborhoods, researchers said. In many of the largest metro areas in the country, neighborhoods on opposite ends of the opportunity spectrum could be only a mile away from each other or even border one another. Some neighborhoods within the same city have inequalities as large as those between the lowest and highest opportunity neighborhoods in the entire country, researchers said. The typical Asian or white child grows up essentially in a world apart, Nolke said. Neighborhoods in the project were compiled in a diversitydatakids.org interactive map. That's a website, diversitydatakids.org.
Researchers said many low-opportunity and very low-opportunity neighborhoods overlap with those redlined by banking systems in the first half of the 20th century, a process that geographically segregated homeownership based on race. While most of these policies are now illegal, their effects remain, the report says. Banks are still settling settling redlining complaints filed by the Justice Department. City National Bank in early 2023 agreed to pay $31 million for allegedly engaging in lending discrimination from 2017 through at least 2020, according to the Department of Justice. The majority of black children, 61%, and Latino children, 58%, live in lower-opportunity neighborhoods, the report says, and they're about seven times as likely as their white and Asian counterparts to live in very low-opportunity neighborhoods. More than 50 years after housing segregation was made illegal, black and Latino children are, quoting from the report here, I'm sorry, quoting from Dolores Acevedo Garcia, who is a director of the Institute for Child Youth and Family Policy at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy and Management. Okay, that's who she is. Let's go back and get her quote. She says that more than 50 years after housing segregation was made illegal, black and Latino children are concentrated in very low-opportunity neighborhoods. That's according to Ms. Alvarado Garcia. Children in very low-opportunity neighborhoods are more likely to suffer from asthma, obesity, severe scoliosis, and childhood glaucoma, according to the report. Researchers also found children in these neighborhoods show high levels of physiological stress, putting them at risk for adverse development and health outcomes, the report said. White and Asian children are more likely to live in higher opportunity neighborhoods, even those whose families face levels of poverty similar to poor black and Latino children, the report found. We have some very, very stark inequities here, according to Acevedo Garcia. Turning now to Iowa life, there's a feature on an Iowa author, how she taught her son herself to embrace who they are. This is part of the Storytellers Project, so Erlyn Kakanen, as told to Paris Barraza and Kim Norvell. So there's an editor's note. Erlyn Kakanen first told the story on stage at the Des Moines Storyteller Project's community. The Des Moines Storytellers Project is a series of storytelling events in which community members work with registered journalists to tell true first-person stories live on stage. This is an edited version. Mama, why am I brown? My world spun so fast when my five-year-old asked me that question. It was a beautiful spring morning, and I was the midday. I was at the midday preschool pickup line, typically my favorite part of the day. I would stand outside the school doors and watch preschoolers wave goodbye to their teachers as my son would run so fast towards me and give me the tightest hug. But today he had a question. He did not run toward me and barely hugged me. His question stopped me in my tracks and threw me into a spiral of emotion and chaos in my mind. I had a pit in my stomach. I wondered if he was being bullied. Did someone say racist comments that hurt him? Was he excluded or feeling like he didn't belong? I was angry, confused, and I felt this strong urge to protect him. It was as through a mama bear three times my size was talking, taking over when she sensed her baby bear was under attack. The muscles on my face felt heavy as I tried to hold back tears to ask him, what happened? He replied, I want to be beige like my best friend. 
That night, we dug deep into where these questions were coming from. I learned that it was an innocent place of curiosity about why he looked different from others in his class. Still, I felt as though his self-esteem was lowering. I don't want him to feel othered and less than. I wanted to ensure he knew he belonged in every space he went in. So I told stories to my sons, ages five and three, about every brown character we saw in movies, like Encanto, Coco, and we also talked about India and my proud Indian heritage. He became more curious and asked, "Are all people in India brown like me?" After I tucked him and his brother into bed that night, I did what every infuriated mom would do. I took my questions to Google. Yes, I googled that night for resources. Children's books about Indian heritage, books with characters that have Asian brown skin. I found less than ten, but I ordered them all. I thought very deeply that night about race and ethnicity. I knew that I would have to race. Race conversation with my kids at some point while they grew up in Iowa, but I didn't think it would be at such a young age. I knew what to say, but I didn't know how to say it. I sat down to see what books we had in our own home library, and was surprised to find that our children's book collection lacked diversity, with no representation of people of color. That pulled back the curtains for me and the harsh reality that he does not see himself in these books or in the classroom. My son wants to blend in, and I thought, of course he does. I too have been pretending to live a different life, trying to blend in with my white peers. You see, I immigrated to the United States a decade ago and stepped into corporate America. During the first few days of my corporate career, I was given some serious feedback about what success looks like and what I needed to do and act and how to behave to be successful. I went shopping to find something to wear, which was my first culture shock. Why were there so many options at Yonkers and Dillard's in plain black and gray? I was so used to handmade clothes in bright colors and gold embroideries, but people at work wore those colors. So I emulated and bought the dull suits. I also was afraid to bring my Indian food to work. I didn't want to be judged because of my ethnic food smelling, and in the process, be hurt by their opinions. When I did, I waited for everyone to be done in the break room before I heated up my leftovers. I even tried to eat the lunchroom American food, but it was just too much bread and cheese for my liking. But in the process of emulation, I lost myself. I would leave my true self at the door every day when I entered work. After spending so many minutes, hours, days, and years in an authentic, in-person version, impersonated version of myself, I lost the part of me that loved bright colors, glitters, strong, aromatic foods. I couldn't even remember who the authentic Erlen was. So when my five-year-old said, "Mama, why am I brown? I want to be beige," I realized I was setting an example for him, one that was opposite of what I was preaching for that night in bed. I wanted him to know that he belonged as his true self, all while I was living in a box of my own creation. I too was striving to be beige at work with my clothes and the way I ate. I felt like a hypocrite. After my Google and booking purchase spree, I journaled my thoughts and the words I said to my kids at bedtime because I wanted to keep telling them those stories and those positive affirmations. And I realized not only did I need to make changes in my own life, I wanted to help my community. Those were kids who are brown celebrate their own true selves. So I started dressing how I wanted, eating the foods I wanted to eat, and celebrating my proud Indian heritage. In this, the renewed confidence in myself led me to write a book. What I wrote that night in May 2022 became an award-winning bestseller children's book. It's titled "Happy in Your Skin." Is Rafa different? 
It's based on an Asian Indian American growing up in the Midwest. Before it was published, I received the first illustrated proofs and I read it to my son. As I was reading it, he turned to me and said, "Mama, this boy, he's just like me." That was the first book that resonated and connected with him. Of course, my kids got the first signed copy. But just because I had published a book didn't mean that we had fixed everything. It was just the beginning. Later that year, I was spotlighted as the local author of the Des Moines Book Festival. Families who stopped at our booth shared their stories. One shared how they didn't know that their kids were curious about race or culture, and when those curiosities went underdressed, they witnessed their kids abandoning and cutting ties with their cultural or ethnic selves. There were also ethnic food stories. One mom said that her son stopped taking burritos to school. Another parent says that her kid decided to stay hungry all day because the kids in her class said that her food smells. I was heartbroken to hear all these stories, but they again hit home when one night at the dinner table, my son casually said, "Mama, I don't think I want to take Indian food to school because I think other kids will stare at me." Another student brings oatmeal. I want to bring oatmeal like her. If this had happened to us ten years ago, I would have said, "Blend in and let's give you something else." But I was on a transformational with my son too, so my community and my family inspired me to write a second book. I love curry and I am not sorry. Again, about Rafa, who brings his favorite meal to class despite what other kids may think. I know we still have a lot of growing to do as a family, but this experience meant so much to us. Before this journey, I would have described my son as a child of a few words. Now he confidently takes part in the world, and so do I. Showing up every day in all the bright, beautiful colors and leftovers in my lunchbox, I have felt welcomed and included. It made me achieve a new level of confidence and happiness. Now, in the process of raising my two boys into a creative, confident geniuses, I have broken out of my shell. I know nobody can put me down because I belong in the spaces I choose to be in. Just the way that I am, Dr. Erilyn Kakalin's experiences have shaped her into a problem solver. An Asian Indian American, Dr. Kakalin earned her PhD in education. She is also an author, entrepreneur, award-winning speaker, human rights commissioner for the city of West Des Moines, and also a business process transformation expert. She and her husband live in West Des Moines with their two sons. The Des Moines Storytellers Project strongly believes that everyone has a story and everyone can tell it. None of the storytellers who take our stage are professionals. They are your neighbors, friends, or coworkers, and they're coached to tell by a registered journalist. Want to tell your story at one of our upcoming Storyteller Project events? Read our guidelines and submit a story at demoinregister.com/tell. You can also contact Storytelling at dmreg.com for more information. You can also listen. You can check out the Des Moines Storytellers Project podcast. It is available on your favorite podcasting platforms. And turning now to the Nation and World section of USA Today, undeterred Kansas City crowds pack the parade route. April Coleman spent Sunday cavorting in the street with family and friends, passing out green beads at the St. Patrick's Day parade in Kansas City, Missouri, and she said she would not be deterred by last month's deadly shooting at another big mass gathering. A rally honoring the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs was disrupted when two groups of people began shooting at each other, leaving a mother. Of two dead and about two dozen others injured, half of them under 
Coleman acknowledged that the shooting was not completely out of her mind, but she said she never considered skipping the St. Patrick's Day parade. I don't want to live my life in fear, she said. I still want to come out and have fun with good people. This time around, under a heavy police presence, things were calm. Police spokeswoman Elena Gonzalez said that two people were arrested, both for nonviolent crimes. Aaron Gobbert of the parade committee said that the crowd appeared somewhat smaller this year, but it was unclear if that was because people were still fearful about the shooting or if the brisk, breezy weather kept people away. Along the route, a man driving a Corvette in the parade stopped long enough to shake the hand of a police officer, and several others did too. One float was pulled by a truck with a sign on the front that read Kansas City Strong. Parade organizers and police were diligent in taking steps to ensure safety. Gonzalez said 400 officers were on the scene. Uniformed police officers lined the lengthy parade route, while many wore more were in plain clothes mingling among the green-clad crowd. Other officers watched from rooftops. A police helicopter hovered over the parade. The Super Bowl rally shooting showed, though, that there are limits to what can be done to stop a sudden outbreak of violence. About 800 officers were on the streets that day when the shots rang out toward the end of the February 14 rally. Police said two groups of people became agitated, apparently because each group did not like the way the other members of the the group were looking at them. Lisa Lopez Galvan, a 43-year-old radio personality, was standing nearby when she was fatally struck. Last month, two men were charged with second-degree murder and other crimes. Three other people were charged Monday, accused of illegally purchasing high-powered rifles and guns with extended magazines, including guns involved in the shooting. And two juveniles are in custody on gun-related and resisting arrest charges. Organizers of the St. Patrick's Day Parade and people involved in other big area parades met shortly after the shooting to compare emergency plans and discuss best practices to deal with potential problems. Parade leaders urged parade goers to leave their guns at home and to arrive with a plan for where to park and where to meet if people got separated. Families were encouraged to have kids wear something that identifies them. They were also encouraged to tell police or a volunteer if they saw anything out of the ordinary. Gabert understood why so why some may have been hesitant to attend this year's parade. Those who did, she said, appeared to have a good time. It was nice to have some normalcy and feel good and enjoy St. Patrick's Day, she said. And our final story this morning is a positive one if you're starting to think about dinner already. This is from the Iowa Life section. Walk makes quick dinner a breeze. I was helping a friend pack up kitchen items for downsizing and came across her walk. I started wrapping it up for the keep box and she said it could go because she never used it. That explained why it looked as if it barely had been used. I was surprised because I use mine all the time. When I need dinner ready quickly, the walk comes out. Plus, it keeps my husband busy with the stand there and steer this request. The food had also be tossed around so all is exposed to the heat source. I would have a hard time coping without it because it's such a vital part of my regular dinner routine. Woks were developed thousands of years ago by the Chinese. It's a superior high heat cooking vessel and that's why you can go from no dinner to eating quickly. The bottom is rounded like a bowl and the design is nothing short of genius. Because of the shape, you have to keep the food moving for even cooking, hence the term stir fry. 
It comes with a ring stand that allows for kitchen stove versatility when you use the wok. The ring keeps the wok stable over a gas flame, or it can be flipped and used over an electric burner. The 14-inch wok I used and loved for decades is made with rolled steel, which is the traditional substance. But these days, you can find woks made of many other materials, such as and designs aluminum, carbon steel, and even cast iron. Forego those are are like well, forego those that are electric. They just can't get hot enough. Style is where they can differ once again. Mine is the classic style called the Cantonese. It has loop handles on opposite sides of the rim of the wok. Others only have one loop, with the opposite side having a long skinnet skillet skillet type of handle. Both are fine, so go with your preference. This is actually from Tammy Allgood. Um, they might be a chef. Um, and let's see. Oh, there's a question from a reader. April Rogers of Knoxville, Tennessee, asked, "Can you help me with a recipe that calls for bean thread noodles? I can't find them." April, look for the more common names of glass or cellophane noodles. There are also named because of the translucent white color. It's made from hard, round mung beans. Well, I'm hungry now. <laughs> We're going to wrap this up. We're going to run just a little over to those、uh, second shift folks who are expecting to come in. This is going, we're going to be about a minute late running into the next shift. But this is a short story about Haiti, where there is a great deal of uh, uh, disruption going on, and the headline reads: "Looting is on the rise in Haiti." As Haiti once again spirals into chaos with another wave of gang violence, a number of government and aid agencies reported Saturday that they, their facilities and aid supplies have been looted. Gangs have raged through Haiti in recent weeks, attacking key institutions and shutting down the main international airport. The chaos has pushed many Haitians to the brink of famine and left many more in increasingly desperate conditions. On Saturday, the United States Children's Emergency, the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund said one of its containers containing essential items for maternal, neonatal, and child survival, including resuscitators and related equipment, were looted at the capital of Port-au-Prince's main port, which was breached by gangs last week. Looting of supplies that are essential for life-saving support for children must end immediately, and humanitarian access must remain safe. Bruno Mayas, a UNICEF representative in Haiti. Said Haiti said in a statement, the aid agency said the looting and overall violence has further cut some of the country's most vulnerable from basic supplies, coming at a critical moment when children need them the most. The same day, the Guatemala's foreign ministry said that offices of its honorary consul in Haiti were ransacked, but did not give any details of damage or thefts, nor did it say who was responsible. The ministry said only paperwork and documentation of the last four or five. Years had been previously transferred to the Guatemala Embassy for Haiti, which is located in the neighborhood in the neighboring Dominican Republic. Chaos is nothing new to Haiti, but the recent upheaval has been particularly brutal. The violence has left Haiti's government in a state of turmoil and prompted Prime Minister Ariel Henry to pledge that he will resign, a key demand of the gangs. The United States has flown in military forces to beef up security at the American embassy and seemingly quash speculation that senior U.S. government officials might be leaving. 
While Haiti's main airport in Port-au-Prince remains closed following gang attacks, the U.S. State Department said it would be offering limited charter flights for American citizens from the less chaotic northern city of cap But it warned that U.S. citizens should consider the flights only if you think you can reach cap Airport safely. And for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Nicole Tam and me. Twyla Glenn, it's been our pleasure to read for you, and now we'll take a short break to let our next readers get into place. Welcome back. Your new readers are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Carol with our first article. Thank you, Jeff. Judge says he has no agenda. A look at the man overseeing Trump's hush money trial. Judge Juan M. Merchant looked across his high-ceiling courtroom facing the defendant in a complicated case not everyone knows about. Yes, Merchant could become the first judge ever to oversee a former U.S. president's criminal trial, Donald Trump's hush money case. But on a recent morning, the judge was attending 
to much less conspicuous cases in Manhattan's once-weekly mental health court, where selected mentally ill offenders agree to closely monitored treatment in hopes of getting charges dismissed and their lives back on track. As Birchon talked with defendants about their progress, stumbles, jobs, families, and even workouts, it was a far cry from the upcoming trial in which Trump will be at the defense table, but the judge also will be in a hot seat. The ex-president and presumptive Republican nominee has called Merchant a Trump-hating judge, and defense lawyers unsuccessfully asked him to exit the case. Merchant received dozens of death threats after Trump slammed him on social media last year. Ten days before jury selection was to start, Merchant on Friday postponed the trial until at least mid-April because of last-minute evidence dump. He scheduled a March 25th hearing on next steps. Merchant wouldn't talk about the case last week, but allowed that getting ready for the historic trial is intense. He's striving to make sure that I've done everything I could to be prepared and to make sure that we dispense justice, he said in an interview, emphasizing his confidence in court staffers. There's no agenda here, he said. We want to follow the law. We want justice to be done. That's all we want, he said. The path to Trump's case. Born in Columbia, Merchant emigrated as a six-year-old and grew up in, in New York. He worked his way through college, graduated from Hofstra University's law school, and was a state lawyer and Manhattan prosecutor before being appointed a family court judge in 2006. Three years later, he was assigned a felony trial court, which New York calls a state supreme court. Oh, excuse me while I find my continuation on another page. Now at age 61, he has presided over cases alleging murder, rape, and many other crimes, a multi-million dollar investment fraud, a club land stabbing, stolen laptops, harassment. He oversaw trials of three men who parachuted off the rebuilt World Trade Center's tallest skyscraper and of at least one defendant in a sprawling Social Security disability fraud case against police officers, firefighters, and others accused of faking psychological problems to get benefits. Merchant is still dealing with the aftermath of the 2012 case of Anna Christina, the soccer mom madam, whose alleged exploits spurred a 2021 Lifetime movie. She now wants to rescind her guilty plea and is suing the judge to try to get some case transcripts unsealed. Lawyers for Merchant have said the sealing was justified. The spotlight on Merchant grew white hot in the last three years as he took on cases involving Trump's company, its former longtime finance chief, Alan Weisselberg, and eventually Trump himself. Trump has pleaded not guilty to doctoring business records to veil a 2016 effort to squelch claims of extramarital affairs, which he denies. Prosecutors say he was trying to protect his first campaign. He has said he is fighting fake case, a fake case brought to impede his current run. Trump was not charged in the tax fraud case against his company, the Trump Organization. A jury voted to convict. Merchant imposed a $1.6 million fine, the legal maximum. 
The company denied wrongdoing and is appealing. If some might see Merchant's family with familiarity with the Trump Organization case as a preparation for the hush money trial, the ex-president and his lawyers see a problem. They have asserted Merchant has preconceived bias against Trump. Seeing the judge strong-armed Weisselberg behind the scenes into taking a plea deal, agreeing to testify in the tax fraud case and serve a five-month jail sentence. Merchant and prosecutors have disputed the claims. The judge wrote that defense lawyers drew misleading conclusions from an inaccurate portrayal of his involvements in Weisselberg's plea negotiations. Trump's lawyers have also pointed out that Merchant's daughter is a political consultant whose firm has worked for Democrats and the judge donated $35 in 2020 to Democratic causes, including $15 to now President Joe Biden. A state court ethics panel opined that Marchin could continue on the case. The judge has vouched that he can be fair and impartial. Trump has a history of assailing judges in cases involving his business or administration. He tangled with jurists in person during his recent civil trials over New York State's claims of business fraud and writer E. Jean Carroll's sexual assault and defamation allegations. Trump denied all the allegations. Federal Judge Louis A. Kaplan presided with a stern authority over two jury trials on Carroll's claims. In the non-jury business fraud trial, State Judge Arthur Engoran at times gave latitude, such as letting lawyers revisit issues he had decided, but at other points pounded his desk in frustration. Merchant has conducted the criminal court date so far with a mannerly but firm formality. When one of Trump's lawyers complained last month that the trial would burden the candidate as he campaigned, Merchant responded, that's not a legal argument. Anything else? Roger Stavis, a lawyer who testified before Merchant during a jury trial years ago, recalls the judge as self-confident but not overbearing. He's in command of his courtroom, Stavis said. He won't be baited, and he won't be pushed around. As for Merchant himself, he says that in his courtroom, everybody gets treated respectfully, professionally. A different lens. During long trials, Manhattan judges often reserve a day each week for other cases. Merchant is keeping Wednesdays for Mental Health Court, which he has overseen since its 2011 start, and a similar veterans docket that he took on in 2019. The mental health docket court no the mental health court recently handles nearly seventy cases while budgeted for fifty a year, according to Amber Petty Cifarelli said. About one hundred participants successfully finished between two thousand fourteen and two thousand twenty one, while one hundred and ninety were accepted, according to a report from Manhattan prosecutors. We help a lot of people, but it's hard work. You get really invested in people's lives, Merchant said, adding that it lets him see people through a different lens than he did when presiding only over criminal cases. Last week, Merchant offered an encouragement to a newcomer who teared up while describing how mental illness ended his full scholarship college studies. He urged one assault defendant not to lose patience with residential treatment rules and congratulated another on passing her real estate class final. He handed progress certificates to some, including a residential treatment patient approved for an apartment. It wasn't all good news. 
Merchant issued a warrant for someone who didn't return to a residential program after a medical visit. A robbery defendant apologized for having smoked. K2, his first misstep in a year of court-supervised treatment. When Merchant asked what happened, the man said he had been depressed because his mom and siblings were far away, but he later talked with his counselor about handling such, handling such feelings. So we're not going to harp on that situation that happened because you've earned good faith, Merchant decided, noting the man's honesty. He remains on course for a progress certificate if he avoids further slips. Another man was making headway toward quitting marijuana, avoiding old hangouts, and getting a library card to make reading a new pastime. Merchant told him, You've got this one issue, and you're working through it. I am very proud of you. And here is Jeff Cassett. Here's an opinion piece from the USA Today pages. This authored by Chris Brennan is entitled, Trump-Biden Play Politics Over Whether to Banish TikTok. Donald Trump's flip-flop on TikTok makes abundantly clear that every single thing is transactional for the former president. And while Trump was actually against TikTok in 2020, before he was for it this month, President Joe Biden is trying to capitalize on that about-face with a game of two-sidesy. The U.S. House passed legislation on Wednesday in a 352-65 to bipartisan vote to force ByteDance, the Chinese owner of TikTok, to sell the social media platform wildly popular with young American users or face a national ban. The argument? TikTok, like all social media platforms, tracks all kinds of sensitive personal data about users and the Chinese government could demand. That was Trump's argument when, as president, he signed a 2020 executive order to block all U.S. transactions with TikTok to address what he called a national emergency. Now Trump says keep TikTok. Why? Well, he's got a new axe to grind with Facebook, and he thinks a TikTok ban would help the rival social media platform. Why has Trump changed his mind on TikTok? But ByteDance has clearly pierced the former president's inner circle, with former advisors now reportedly pushing him to pull back on TikTok. And Pennsylvania's richest man might have also played a role. Jeff Yass, a founder of the suburban Philadelphia stock trading firm Susquehanna International, who is estimated by Forbes to be worth $26.7 billion, holds a $15 billion stake in ByteDance, according to a Bloomberg valuation. Politico reported this month that Trump told the conservative Club for Growth in a speech that Yass had encouraged him to attend the event. Trump, in that speech, called Yass, who had previously been critical of the former president, fantastic. Trump doesn't cozy up to critics for no reason. His campaign coffers have been depleted by legal fees in his civil and criminal cases, and his allies just took over the Republican National Committee, which has been lackluster in fundraising of late. Having a super-rich pal like Yass probably looks pretty lucrative right now.
Politico has also reported that Kellyanne Conway, a former Trump campaign manager and White House advisor, was working for Club for Growth to talk up TikTok to Congress. And the Washington Post on Tuesday reported that another Trump aide, Tony Saig, now handles public affairs for Yass's trading firm and has been advocating in Trump's camp for TikTok. ByteDance has also stepped up spending on lobbying against such a ban. The company reported spending $8.7 million last year to lobby legislators in the House and Senate. That's an increase of 77% in what the company reported for lobbying in 2022. Did ByteDance get its money's worth? With changing American sentiment on TikTok. A Pew Research Center survey of American adults released a year ago found that 50% supported a TikTok ban, while 22% opposed that. People ages 18 to 29 showed the strongest opposition at 46%. People who identified as conservative showed the strongest support at 70%. That didn't take long to change. Pew reported in December that overall support for a ban fell to 38%, a drop of 12 percentage points. In addition, 35% say they were unsure about a ban, while 27% opposed it, an increase in 5 points. Again, 18 to 29-year-olds showed the least amount of support for the ban, while conservatives showed the most. The survey conducted September 25th to August 1st found opinions among Democratic participants more mixed, which helped shift the overall approval rate in TikTok's favor. Biden has played both sides of the debate. Biden would probably love to win over conservative voters in what will now be a 2020 rematch with Trump. But he needs those young voters to stick with his coalition if he's going to win a second term in November. To get there, Biden is willing to be for and his campaign joined TikTok last month to reach young voters. Then the president said Friday that he would sign into law legislation to force a sale if passed in Congress. Why play both sides? Young voters have been drifting from Biden for months. It doesn't help that a sitting president had just just had to launch a campaign commercial to address concerns that he's 81 years old and looking to stick around until 2028. Does he really want the guy who kills off TikTok? The Trump and his Republican out. And Trump and his Republican allies always try to paint Biden as a feeble defender of America against a looming Chinese threat. So Biden called the bluff here, likely anticipating the legislation would stall and never reach his desk. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, New York Democrat, appears to be in zero rush to take up the TikTok ban legislation. And just as Trump's attempt at an executive order got tied up in a legal challenge, ByteDance could try the same path through the courts to stymie this effort. Biden has the better hand here. He can keep saying the Senate should support her. Does Trump's new position on banning TikTok matter to GOP? 
What about Trump? He had a legion of Republican legislators who have matched his anti-TikTok rhetoric for years. He just walked away from all that, didn't even bother to look over his shoulder at them. Does it matter? Steve Bannon, another former Trump campaign manager who served as White House advisor, posted recently on social media that the former president's motivation for the TikTok reversal was simple. Yas coin. So Bannon suggests that Trump flip-flopped in hopes of largesse from Yas. Notably, there was no stampede of congressional Republicans to the waiting microphones post-vote Wednesday to put any distance between themselves and Trump. There are 65 House votes against the TikTok ban on Wednesday, 50 Democrats and 15 Republicans. They included some of the Trumpiest Republicans in the House, Matt Gaetz of Florida, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. Still, 197 House Republicans voted for the ban, in opposition to a revised and reversed position held by their party's presumptive nominee for president. A loss for TikTok is now a loss for Trump, unless, of course, he just completely changes his position again. Carol? Well, I guess we have maybe a minute here for some local sports on TV. Uh, For today, Monday, March 18th, baseball at 5 a.m. on MLBN, Korea versus Los Angeles Dodgers Exhibition, Seoul, South Korea. College softball, 6 p.m., SECN, Mississippi at LSU. MLB baseball at noon. MLB Let's see, MLBN Spring Training, Boston versus Minnesota at Fort Myers, Florida. 3 p.m. MLBN Spring Training, Los Angeles Angels versus Milwaukee at Phoenix. NBA Basketball, 640. Um, ESPN, Miami at Philadelphia. At 9.05, ESPN, New York at Golden State. And the final category is for NHL Hockey uh, at 7.30, NHLN, Washington at Calgary. And now it's time for Dear Abby. Dear Abby, I recently hosted my husband's birthday. It was a great party. I reserved for eight 85 people, including the DJ, his assistant, the party planner, and her crew. On the day of the event, 20% of the guests who RSVP'd did not show up. One couple said their two daughters had a debut party that night. Another family said their son had an outing. Others had legitimate reasons like being sick or their house catching fire. I gave my guests ample time to RSVP. I sent the save the date cards four months before, the invitation two months before, and the deadline to RSVP two weeks before the event. I even extended the invitation to allow other adults and kids to come to the party. I was too generous. I think it's rude for the families who RSVP for a certain number of people to dismissively not show up because of another event, not considering that each headcount means additional cost and planning for the meal, the seating chart, etc. 
How do I let them know? I wish they would have told me ahead of time so I could have removed them and saved myself a few hundred dollars. Or should I even let them know? Signed, generous host in Texas. Abby says, dear host, I thought a lecture to these boars would be effective. Oh, if I thought a lecture to these boars would be effective, I would tell you, go ahead and do what you have in mind. However, a more effective and less confrontational way to save yourself a future headache would be to simply omit them from your guest list. And dear Abby, my sister-in-law is a lovely woman, generous, with a heart of gold. Her husband, my husband's brother, <clears throat> excuse me, is a kind and gentle man who works hard to provide for his family. They do much for their community and seemingly have every moment of the day occupied with something. But whenever with, when I'm with my sister-in-law, she never fails to whine about where her husband falls short. Sometimes she does it in front of him. It's uncomfortable because I don't want him to think I agree with her. Almost always the problems are minuscule. For example, the house is never clean enough or he's not doing X, Y, Z to help her. To me, it looks like he does plenty. She says she's always doing everything herself. I'm not one for confrontation and don't want to cause trouble in our relationship because I do enjoy her a lot and I'm afraid of the repercussions of going there. But enough is enough. It makes me dread one-on-one -on -one conversations or not wanting to interact because it's draining. How do I handle this? Signed, Zero Tolerance. Abby says, Zero Tolerance. Ask your sister-in-law to please stop complaining because when she does, it makes you uncomfortable. After that, when she starts again, change the subject to something else. Cooking, gardening, even politics or religion if you think it will distract her. Good luck. Now we'll go back to Jeff. Well, that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. Monday, the 18th of March, 2024. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone for this last few minutes has been Carol Lockard. Earlier, you heard from Nicole Tam and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.